Okay. Welcome to the Environmental Justice Report with me, the producer and host, Janine Mala. Well, we're at the end of the year now. Tomorrow night is going to be New Year's Eve. Some of us have no idea what 2022 holds. Some of us have a very good idea of what it holds. And probably most of us are so sick and tired of the antics, excuse me, of the very rich and the corrupt GOP, and that also includes corporate Democrats as well, that serve the billionaire class and the corporate class. You know, we used to have a very, albeit trite, idea of what democracy meant in this nation. And it was the idea that no matter how wealthy you were, everybody's vote counted equally. Now, those cynics among us, we we know that's not true. We know that money is not speech. Money buys influence, period. And when you buy influence, there are other synonyms for that action. There's uh, corruption. There's graft. There's criminality, and we're all negatively impacted by it. So what does it have to do with environmental justice? Pretty much everything. You know, we are on a, a planet that is being very rapidly destroyed. You can call it global warming. You can call it uh, climate change. And, and frankly, I find those particular labels, while they may be I don't know, politically correct, or they may be scientifically accurate. They don't accurately convey to the average person who's just trying to make their way in this world and pay their bills. It doesn't convey to them the level of danger everybody is, that everybody's in. That's the problem. So I'm not going to call it climate change, and I've said this before, I'm not going to call it uh you know, global climate, war, global warming, excuse me, I'm kind of, this is very extemporaneous today. I'm going to call it what it is, global destruction. It's wanton, it is premeditated, and it is being done for no other purpose but to serve the needs of the billionaire class and the very rich to get that last penny of profit, basically you know, the, I really find it difficult to understand people who, especially young people, who say idolize a monster like Elon Musk. You know, he he produces an electric car and a self-driving car at that. So what? I, I mean, he's not the first person to come up with an electric car, first of all. Let's make that clear. Uh, Musk basically created a toy for the very rich, and I'll call it what I called it before. It's basically a ga- uh, an electronic, let me start again. It's, his car is an electric power giant penis for transport because that's what it is. You know, it, it's just like the two rockets that went up. You know, uh, Jeff Bezos went up. <clears throat> I think Richard Branson did. They wanted to show that they could send a rocket into space. and did anyone not notice what those rockets looked like, especially Bezos? 
I mean, it was so obviously, again, a giant penis, I couldn't believe it. And that's what these escapades are. They do nothing to help humanity at all. And so we we don't have a democracy. In fact, some people say it's never been that. It's been a republic. But the fact remains that what we're stuck with is a, a government that is so thoroughly corrupt that whatever, and, and that includes the court, so whatever level of justice you get depends on how much money you can fork over. Now, occasionally they'll go after someone who's very rich, like Jeffrey Epstein, and, you know, good. But that was only, be, I suspect that was only because he embarrassed a lot of other very powerful people, and they didn't want to get caught in that trap. So if you look at the advert today, and I know I'm kind of going off topic a little bit, you'll see it says how the rich are the greatest source of climate change, which is a polite way of putting it. And, you know, basically it says income inequality is not merely an issue of labor justice, but also one of environmental justice. Multiple studies in recent years have documented a clear link between the excesses of the very rich and increased environmental destruction the state of affairs cannot continue. I'm going to discuss this issue, and there's some possible solutions, such as uh, a progressive environmental tax, so that the rich pay their fair share, including on this. It's the old adage, you broke it, you bought it, you fix it. But the fact is the rich, and by the rich I mean the very rich, they treat this planet as their private playground And the poor especially pay the price with their lives, but all of us are paying the price. While the general public has been lectured to recycle and conserve, the rich really don't care. And that's as they commit what should be considered a crime against the planet, namely ecocide. I'm also going to discuss an interview that Noam Chomsky gave at Democracy Now! He calls out the GOP specifically for wantonly destroying the planet. So let's go straight into this. So the topic, very simply, topic number one, the rich. When I say the rich, I mean the 1% or the, um, and even those that are above the 1%, the Bezos, the, the Musk, you know, these people, but also just the regular rich, the rich, the 1%, they are the main driver of the worsening climate destruction crisis. And this ever-worsening climate crisis, it has taken center stage just the past year. And the reason it's received so much, uh, so much coverage in the corporate media is because of environmental activists, uh, especially driven by young people that have insisted, they put their bodies on the line. They have filled the streets and blocked streets, uh, whether it was during the Glasgow fake conference on environmentalism. Um, <clears throat> And these massive protests have gone on hunger strikes. These activists, especially the younger ones, they know the planet they're inheriting is on a very, very short timeline. I mean, if we don't fix this somehow, then this planet, I suspect, not only for people that are young adults now, but if they have children soon, 
will very rapid this planet will very rapidly be uninhabitable. And we those of us who are older, we had no right to do this to future generations. You know, I I got into a fight with a, a friend a couple of months ago actually. And um we were talking about this very subject and she is conservative. But I thought she could see the common sense of this. And, you know, when I mentioned that, you know, we're going to have to make some changes, all right? Uh, maybe we'll have to cut down on our driving or give up the individual car, so on. Maybe we'll have to change, you know, how we fuel our cars, or how we heat our homes. She went off on a tangent. She said, what? We're going to line up to an electric charging station? Now, mind you. What is really the difference between charging your car's battery at a station or filling it up with gasoline? You know, she couldn't see her way past that. To her, that very idea was so, it was beyond insulting to her. It it literally enraged her to her very core. You could tell she had been listening to a lot of Fox and immediately went into panic mode and saw anybody who suggested we change our ways somewhat as being the enemy. And, you know, it's kind of funny, too, because that same day as we were getting into this, and I was trying to explain, I had given her some, uh, I had some excess groceries. I had given it to her. She got so mad at me, she started throwing the stuff out of her car and onto my lawn. I I kid you not. Um, Needless to say, we don't talk anymore. So, again, I know I'm getting off topic today, but, you know, the problem is we have to have these uncomfortable discussions with alleged friends and family members. And at this point, we can't afford to mollycoddle friends or family who remain defiant because the future of having a planet that's habitable, the future of every animal, plant, species of humanity itself is on the line, and we don't have time for the childish tantrums of conservatives. We just don't, and we shouldn't tolerate it. That's what I'm saying. So this ever-worsening climate crisis, again, these activists have put their bodies on the line, and God bless them, okay, because this grabbed the attention of corporate media. They didn't like it, but they had to pay attention. And, you know, their concerns are very real. So this report, I'm going to discuss the findings of some recent research, which, again, identified this core problem, namely that the wealthy are the main driver of this global crisis. Keep in mind, we are killing this planet. Make no mistake about it. Much of the Arctic ice shelf has melted. All right. So the rich in these reports are defined both as wealthy nations as well as corporations and individuals. And the reports have also found that there is a direct positive correlation between wealth inequality and increasing global climate devastation. Okay, To put it bluntly, the very rich are the most responsible for the destruction of the planet and the poor pay for their crimes against the same planet. To put bluntly, once again, this is echocide on steroids. So that's part one of the report. 
part two, I'm going to discuss the interview in short that Noam Chomsky gave on Amy Goodman's show, Democracy Now. Okay? And Chomsky, again, takes on the GOP in their quest to get this never-ending profit uh, as they destroy the planet and the insanity of it all. You know, let's face it, unbridled capitalism with no regulation and no common sense and no consideration for communities and, and people and the planet itself, this unbridled, unfettered capitalism is, can only continue if you have constant growth. But think of it this way in terms of the physics. You cannot have constant growth on a planet with finite or limited resources. It doesn't work. We've already gone way past this planet's sustainability. The question is, how are we going to fix this? And those of us that live in wealthier nations, some of you that come, that have personal wealth, you need to think beyond just your personal wealth. You need to realize this will affect your children and any grandchildren. They will pay the price for our greed, for our foolishness. So the first story is from Business Insider, and they describe this report. And this is a new report. And it is, the title is The World Inequality Report. And it discovered, predictably, the wealthiest in the world contribute the most carbon emissions. They also discovered that financial assets, so the financial assets industry, that's banking, that's stocks, that's hedge funds, um, all those gambling devices that financial institutions use to create more profits. Yeah, that could be considered cryptocurrency for that matter. Financial assets make up a larger share of the wealth of the rich, not real estate. And the report suggested that the people that have the most wealth should pay more to fight the climate crisis because they're polluting more. You know, it's the equivalent of, let's say two people go into a restaurant. One person is like a college student. They have limited income. And all they can afford is a bagel, cream cheese, and some coffee. Okay? Another person comes in. They have surf and turf, lobster, steak, you name it. Is it fair for the person that had the lobster to pay the same price as the person that had this little morsel of bread and coffee? Of course not. So let's look at this. So wealth inequality is not just any, it doesn't just affect the United States. It's across the globe. And the climate crisis and the stock market, that's the financial assets industry, stock market is a big part of it, plays significant roles. Now, the, there was a group called the Wealth Inequality Lab or Laboratory, and they published their 2022 report uh, this past Tuesday. And what they did is they investigated and examined global wealth distribution globally. And what they found is that wealth, yes, is directly correlated with the climate crisis. And the people who tend to own the most financial assets are also the people contributing the most to carbon emissions across the globe. What they also found is that for lower income people, wage earners, if you will, um, their main form of wealth was either in cash or bank deposits. In other words, their paycheck, that's predictable. Middle class people 
had bank, you know, bank deposits of their paycheck, but they also had some real estate. Maybe they owned a home. Uh, but the wealthiest people, okay, this is people from, you know, a low like, you know, the Trumps, on through co the Coke industries, on through Bezos, Musk, you name it. The richest people, 40 and I'm reading straight from this, 40 to 60% of their wealth comes from financial assets. And we found that out recently, too, because there's been a lot of criticism. You know, Senator Elizabeth Warren recently criticized the 1%, and specifically Elon Musk saying, you know, he needs to pay his fair share in taxes. And Musk's, resp Musk's response was that he does. You know, he doesn't bring out, he doesn't pay, he doesn't get that much pay. But the way the rich get evade their taxes is by playing games with the financial assets. They have everything invested or quite a bit invested in financial assets. They take very little in pay and then what they do is they take a loan in the gains they would have on their taxes. So it registers on their taxes that loan as a loss as opposed to a gain. And it's just another form of fraud, nothing more. Um and this is what we're having. This is what we're seeing. But these are the same people that are contributing the most to carbon emissions, glo carbon emissions globally. Um, what they also found was the very top groups, according to the report, they reported that financial assets like stocks and bonds can quote account for 90 to 95 percent of all wealth in countries like France or the United States end quote. And these are the people most contributing to carbon emissions. The report also said the top 10% of earners, quote, accounts for emitting 47.6% of the total carbon emissions, while the global bottom 50, while the global bottom 50% emit 12% of the total. So this report's saying top 10% of the wealthiest, which is a small number of people, contribute just about 48% of total carbon emissions globally. It's 47.6%. And then the bottom wage earners, the bottom 50% wage earners across the world, billions of people, emit only 12% of total carbon emissions. You know, those numbers pretty much say it. Now, they went into looking, they looked into reasons for this this enormous disparity and one of the reasons they found was that the carbon tax so they pointed out that yeah in some countries the carbon tax has been implemented not only successfully but fairly but countries like France uh, and again they specified France don't consider what they call socioeconomic context to quote from the world inequality report um, Quote, large inequalities in emissions suggest that climate policy should target wealthy polluters more. So far, climate policies such as carbon taxes have often disproportionately impacted low- and middle-income groups while leaving consumption habits of wealthiest groups unchanged, end quote. And, and I agree with that. I can see why people that are lower-income uh, lower or middle-income, let's say, including conservatives, I can see why they would object to a carbon tax because 
once again, it's, you know, it's regressive, it's hurting them, and the rich are getting away with it. And what this report is saying is that, no, the rich should pay their fair share. If they are contributing almost 50% of all carbon emissions, then that carbon tax on them should be incredibly large and it shouldn't even touch. Lower income and middle income people should have very little in terms of a carbon tax. But this goes back to the idea the rich must pay their fair share and fair share has to be determined by proportionate amounts, not a flat percentage. You've ever noticed wealthy people and wealthy groups, they always love the idea of a flat tax, a flat percent. Have you stopped to think why? Because a flat percent, let's say 15%, 15% of their income for somebody with the wealth of Elon Musk is nothing. So 15% is somebody who makes under, say, 40000 or 50000 a year is a huge chunk. And it's no way a fair estimate of a fair share, in other words. The fact is that's why you have to have a progressive tax that means that richer people are going to purport, they're going to pay more because the tax is based on a, everybody paying a fair proportion. That's what they're saying. Otherwise, look at it this way. Think about two, two kids standing in front of you. One kid, 90 pounds, maybe five foot eight, drastically underweight, and the kid comes from a poor family, and he has to pay for, let's say, his school books. And the school books cost $100, and his mom only brings home maybe $300 a week. That's a third of their income. The next kid is the same five foot eight, muscular, big, mom and dad are wealthy, 100 bucks worth of books is nothing. Again, taxes across the board must be proportional so that the wealthy pay their fair share. Otherwise, you're asking somebody who is weak as a kitten to lift the equivalent of a Mack truck while the person who's big and muscular lifts the equivalent of a, of a fly swatter. It doesn't work. That's why the wealthy and their lawyers always push for a flat tax because they know it's discriminatory. Taxes must be progressive and proportionate. That's the only way there's going to be justice. So moving on, this is the same thing. They're talking about carbon taxes, and what they're describing in this report is that right now the standard way to think about carbon taxes is the idea of a flat tax that every person pays the same amount, no matter how poor or how wealthy they are. But that gives the wealthy more room to pollute because that same tax means nothing to them. So we have to have a progressive carbon tax, and that's a tax that, inc quote, increases with the level of emissions or the level of wealth of individuals. Seems only fair, okay? You shouldn't, you should not expect, to, and again, I know I'm using a lot of uh, examples right now, you shouldn't expect to go to a gourmet 
seven-course meal and pay the price that you would pay for a kid's burger at McDonald's. The fact is the very wealth have freeloaded off the rest of us for too long. So, and this report does mention Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and how both of them have championed the idea of a wealth tax that would place a 2% tax on household net worth, quote, between $50 million and $1 billion, and a 3% tax on household net worth over $1 billion, end quote. That's not enough. You know, what led to the big expansion in the United States that created the middle class, if you will, between the end of World War II on through, I'd say, 1970, was the fact that the wealthy paid their fair share. It means, yes, someone like Elon Musk would pay between 80 and 90% tax, period. Someone like the Trump family, they would pay probably 70% tax. I think that a 2% and a 3% tax is too small. I, I love the fact that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are trying to fight for it, but frankly, they're thinking too small. You know, when you want to negotiate a deal and get the best possible deal for your people, you never lowball. You go in and you, you go in as unreasonable and outrageous as possible because you know it's going to get negotiated down. Make no mistake about it. And you go like that if you want to win. Okay, it's just common sense. So this uh, this article from in, uh, Business Insider on this on this uh, report, excuse me, this World Inequality Report, which links global devastation to inequality in income as well. The two go hand in hand. It also mentions that the U.S. right now doesn't have a federal carbon tax. Now, some Democratic lawmakers have proposed a tax on imports from other countries, but it doesn't reduce carbon emissions, and that's according to the New York Times. It also mentions that President Biden does have a plan to cut, or he did have a plan to cut carbon emissions by 2030, and he was going to accomplish it through the Build Back Better framework with a $550 billion investment, again, according to Business Insider, um, but we know what happened with that. It got tanked because the GOP paid off, I'm just going to say, they paid off Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema to stonewall and make sure that that, that uh, plan never saw the light of day. Okay? Let's be realistic here, folks. All right. And, you know, the, one of the conclusions they came up with is that if we could dramatically reduce carbon pollution, wealth inequality could also be lessened. The two go hand in hand. And I agree. Right now, if you're interested in the World Inequality Report, there is a 236-page report, and the title, and you can go to the Business Insider article to, to download it, the title is World Inequality Report, Shall Rich Cause Climate Crisis? Okay? I have a little water here. I apologize that I'm in bad voice today. It's Like I said, it's asthma time. So um, there's another piece here. 
And this is a blog. And the title is, this is from 2017, Is Inequality Harming the Environment? The theory that global devastation and income inequality are inextricably linked together uh, has been put out there for a while now. And it affects everything. I mean, a lot of, did it ever occur to anybody that a lot of the migrants that we are seeing, especially from the area of the Amazon, are actually climate migrants. They are leaving parts of the Amazon where mining companies, for instance, have poisoned their water. They have no choice. You know, rich countries cause it and the poor suffer because of it. This is criminality. It doesn't matter if the criminals are corporate heads and corporate law firms that wear Brooks Brothers. They're still criminals. So tackling economic inequality, um, it can't be sacrificed while we try and tackle environmental damage is what they're saying. These two go hand in hand. You know, there are those, especially, I would say, more affluent white liberals. You know, I'm talking people that thought Barack Obama and Al Gore were the best thing since, you know, since... Since, you know, um, since, let me go, let me start again, okay? <laughs> little problem there. I'm talking about white affluent liberals that think that Barack Obama and Al Gore are the best things since sliced bread. All right? These are the Nancy Pelosi white liberals that basically they, they give you this spiel that they are a social liberal, but more of a fiscal moderate or conservative. Is this? You can somehow divide those two things and, and be fair about it. And I say, hogwash. The people that claim they are social progressives or social liberals, but fiscally more conservative or moderate, they're liars. Because nothing affects certain disenfranchised and disadvantaged groups, minority groups, than economic hardship, period. You know, it may be nice that Pelosi is pro-choice, but what good does that pro-choice stance do for a woman that earns minimum wage, can't afford child care for the children she has, and can't afford the abortion in the first place, can't afford the uh, contraception to avoid abortion? All right, you can't separate the two. What good is it that... Um, Pelosi or, or um, you know, Hillary Clinton are pro-gay marriage, which is lovely, when you have lower-income gays, lesbians, and trans people that are going without health care and dying. You know, what good is being socially progressive when people aren't even being allowed to have a living wage. In fact, living wage isn't good enough. We should have a thriving wage. You know, a lot of people take, a lot of wealthy people take the attitude that you should be grateful that somebody gave you a job, that the rich created these jobs. And I know I'm kind of going off on a lot of tangents tonight, so kind of bear with me, but nobody gives you a job. You are trading your time 
and your body and your skills for a paycheck, period. It should be considered a, a fair and an equal exchange with some reasonable respect, but it isn't. And the rich don't create jobs. What they do is they find ways to increase their wealth, and if they can, and more often than not, they're able to increase their wealth by cutting jobs, not creating them. So let's stop this bullshit. The fact is, people that claim that they are socially progressive and fiscally moderate conservative, they're not progressives. You know why they like social issues? Because social issues don't cost them any money. That's why. They can still invest in corporations that pay you nothing. They can still happily invest in corporations like Amazon that put their workers at risk. And now they're scratching their heads and they are so confused. Why are so many people resigning from their jobs? One, they're tired of being abused on the job. Two, they're tired of being abused on the job and earning starvation wages. And like one other thing, they have, they're smart enough to know that they really shouldn't have to risk their lives during this pandemic that has gone unchecked for a measly paycheck, period, that makes them little more than a slave. And this ties in directly with, yes, environmental justice. Because who gets crapped on the most? when it comes to environmental injustice, the poor, the working class. And we need to stop these artificial divisions. So if someone asked me, do I consider Nancy Pelosi to be a progressive? Hell no. There is nothing progressive about that woman. She's a corporatist. Do I consider Barack Obama a progressive? No, and he never was. Check his record back in Illinois. He's a corporatist. The same with the Clintons. They're corporatists. My main objection to Hillary when she was running was neoliberal fiscal policies, period. That was it. If she had embraced the stuff that Bernie was talking about and taken him on, say, as her VP, newsflash, Trump would have never made it to the White House. So once again, is inequality harming the environment? Of course it is, because the wealthier people get, the more license they feel they have to abuse the planet and to abuse people with impunity. It's that simple. You don't have to look any further than our, our neighbors to the north in Canada. Canada has this, this great reputation for being great environmental stewards, except it's Really not true. Canadian mining interests are some of the worst polluters in the Amazon. Their mines aren't just polluting, they're poisoning the water supply there. And when these local governments try to actually go to court and fight for the right to have safe drinking water because of um, multilateral investment treaties and this thing called ISDS, the arbitrators rule in favor of the big corporations. So the rich are fine with poisoning the water of indigenous people 
in the Amazon so they can get their, they can extract uh, the metals they need for mining. It's that simple. There's no mystery here. You can read these studies yourself. Uh, I guess at this point in time, I'm just so disgusted with the whole situation. Um, and they go on, this, this particular blog is dealing with the problem in the UK. One of the points they made is that, quote, those who suffer most from the effects of inequality in the UK are also disproportionately affected by the cost of environmental damage. And of course they are. What we're really talking about, and we will talk about it more in another report because I'm getting way too emotional about this, but the fact very simply is this. There's a lot of studies and a lot of facts and one simple inescapable truth. The arrogance and criminality of the wealthy makes them think they can abuse all the rest of us at will. We are talking about the criminal abuse of most of the world's peoples and the world's environment by the wealthy so they can have bigger and louder toys to amuse themselves with. It has nothing to do with anything else. It's really that simple. And until we get control of our political systems and our court systems back so the rich don't have an unfair advantage, so the rich aren't able to buy politicians, so the rich aren't able to buy judges. Until we have that, none of this is going to work because this is dealing with injustice, with criminality on the part of the wealthy across the board. So to try and separate basically uh, environmental crimes from financial crimes, you really can't. They go hand in hand. What is the incentive for these big financial groups to invest in fossil fuel to make more profit. That's simple. And as long as they can get away with it and they're not taxed and forced to pay for what they've broken, nothing will change. Too many activists have been led to believe that the desires of um, economic activists differ from those of environmental activists and so on and so forth. They don't. You know, we need to go back and look at what Dr. King was talking about towards the end of his life, you know, in terms of a poor people's campaign. And we don't have to look any further than the than Reverend Barber and his poor people's campaign. It's right there. The fact is we outnumber the rich by a lot. And yes, the police can stop us, but we outnumber the police too. The only way these rich bastards continue to win is by our own cowardice and our refusal to stick together. The fact is the very rich, they need, especially conservatives, they need people to be bigoted. They need them to be racist and sexist. They need to create that division because if the most of us ever brought it together and figured out that we're all being hurt by this, this system of unbridled, unfettered, predatory capitalism. If we all figured out that we, that we all need to stick together, nobody gets until everyone gets. 
we could have everything we ever wanted. We could come close to solving this problem. And the rich don't want you to ever figure that out. Okay? So the fact is economic inequality, economic inequality goes hand in hand with ecological inequality. It just does. According to this study, uh, as we said, this, according to Oxfam, the richest 10% of the world's population is accountable for about 50% of global emissions. Okay? There's evidence that suggests that, quote, more unequal affluent countries generate higher levels of pollution than their more equal counterparts, according to dannydorling.org. And according to Ginny, G-I-N-I, research.org, the more unequal societies experience status anxiety. Now, status anxiety is produced. It's something the rich want us to feel, all right? The idea being that if you're not wealthy, there are these consumption goals that, for the most of us, are unattainable. And basically, you're like that hamster on a wheel going faster but going nowhere, going nowhere fast, because you feel the need that you have to consume just as much, okay? The fact is that the rich consume far more, quote, than the rest of the population. That's according to ScienceDirect.com. And this is something where, you know, we fed this, this myth in the United States. It started with Horatio Alger, but it, it continues where if you work hard and you are somehow a genius, that somehow magically you too will become rich and the sky is the limit. Except for a few problems with that theory. First of all, what defines rich? It's a relative term. Uh, you know, if you look at somebody who makes six figures compared to someone who makes eight figures, so a millionaire—I'm uh, sorry, somebody who makes—let's put somebody who makes in the hundreds of thousands compared to a billionaire. The person who makes in the hundreds of thousands looks rich to someone who makes minimum wage. The billionaire looks rich to the person that it may be just just started to reach that one million dollar mark. It's all relative. And the fact is the quest for wealth itself is a fool's errand because in order for some people to be extremely rich, by definition, everyone else must be extremely poor. If you have a planet with finite resources, in other words, limited resources, you can compare it to a pie. And it is an, let's say it's a pizza. Compare it to a pizza. It's 18 inches across in its diameter. The rich have 90% of that pie, and the rest of us have to get what we can from that last little sliver. That's what defines rich. Rich means scarcity. In order for a few people to be rich, scarcity must exist for the rest of us. In other words, the rich cannot be rich unless the majority are not rich are poor. Now, look at that again and figure out, okay, so you're trying to take a sucker bet that somehow you're going to be that one in a billion. Your chances are greater 
of winning a billion dollars in the lottery by buying one ticket. I'm not saying that you can't improve your lot. And if, if you work hard and become educated, you can't actually build something for yourself. You can. You can build a good life. But that's different from being very, very rich. And we bought into this mythology. We've literally, by buying into that mythology, we've, we've actually subsidized our own impoverishment. Think about it. By buying into that Horatio Alger myth that somehow magically you will become super rich, you have, in effect, socially subsidized your own and everyone else's impoverishment. Doesn't work. When we could share resources. That's simple. We can talk about these other things, but this is really what it boils down to. And now we're at a point in this global emergency. We can't wait to 2030. You know, we just had that Glasgow UN conference, but it was, excuse my language, it was bullshit. Everybody was pushing net zero. And to the average person, that sounds good, right? But all net zero is saying is that we'll keep pollution, we'll try work real hard to keep pollution at the same level. But the same level is destroying the planet. That would be akin to saying, hmm, an alcoholic deciding, well, you know what? As an alcoholic, he's drinking, let's say, a bottle of whiskey a night. A fifth of whiskey. I think that's what it's called. And net zero being, all right, I'll just keep doing the fifth of whiskey every night. I won't do two fifths, two bottles. You're still killing yourself. That's what net zero does. Because the rich don't want to give up their toys. That's it. Because the rich have become, it's not just a, uh, this isn't merely a culture of conspicuous consumption on the part of the very wealthy. It is really a matter that the very wealthy are addicts and their addiction, their drug of choice is wealth and power and nothing's ever enough. So that basically the very people, the leaders of society, whether they are presidents, prime ministers, Supreme court justices, um, congressmen, senators, captains of industry, entertainers, whatever, they're addicts, and they're just as crazy as any addict would be, looking for their next fix. And what they're doing is instead of just destroying themselves, they're destroying the planet because they have to have that next fix. Our world is being run by addicts, and again, their drug of choice is wealth, excessive wealth and power. And that's crazy. <clears throat> Economic inequality goes hand-in-hand with fiscal inequality. I'm sorry, hand-in-hand with with economic inequality goes hand-in-hand with ecological inequality. And both are toxic. Just is. Um, Again, places where they have high economic inequality 
also have increased, according to study, increased homicide rates because, once again, people are getting desperate. I'm looking at some of the comments from this blog post, and it, it's interesting. Um, there is, let's see now, I believe this is a comment from, I hope I'm reading this right, Dr. Robert Lipkowitz, quote, I am a Fulbright scholar with degrees in mechanical engineering, accounting, a doctor of business administration and strategic management, and an MBA. Having lived and studied on four different continents, I have seen and experienced firsthand the corrosive impact of economic inequality upon individuals and society. I believe economic inequality is the single most important factor threatening the very existence of our world today. Let's move on here, okay? Yes, we were talking about how the wealthy drive most of the ecological damage, but they are able to do so because of growing economic inequality because basically the wealthy have all the chips and our political systems are too corrupt and too helpless to change things. The law is a joke to most of the very wealthy. It just is. There was another article from Grist. Uh, this was written by Susan Holmberg back in 2015. The headline is, inequality isn't just bad for the economy, it's toxic for the environment. It turns out that tackling economic inequality is good climate change policy. <clears throat> and that's something that especially young activists in the environmental movement need to understand too. Um, I met a lot of young people a couple summers ago and they they mean well and they were talk they were talking about the need to save the planet. A lot of these kids came from comfortable, affluent suburban families. And they were talking about the need to go vegan. And somebody brought up the fact that, well, a lot of lower-income people live in what are called food deserts. They can't afford to go vegan, or even if they were to grow their own gardens, they don't, they're working so many jobs, they don't have time to tend to gardens. And um, they looked a little surprised, okay, because going vegan can be expensive. And then I countered with a question. I said, okay, so let's say we improve these food deserts and people can do this. Counterpoint, that shiny new car that your parents bought you on your 16th birthday, are you willing to give that up? They didn't like hearing that. So there, there is a wealth gap, even in the environmental movement, that people from poorer, uh, for lower income areas, it's not necessarily they don't want to help fight this ec ecological collapse. They're just too busy trying to survive. We need to not attack them, but talk to them and see what we can do to help. If you want to tackle ecological inequality, you have to you have to tackle income inequality. So this article that was written in 2015 mentioned the Pope's encyclical on climate change. I really like this Pope. He's a good guy, and I'm not Catholic. 
and this was the came from the Vatican. And um, you know, this Pope is really trying to to push efforts to solve the climate crisis, and he was trying back in 2015 to build momentum for the UN Climate Conference later that year. Um, and the most profound and consistent message through Pope Francis's text, the encyclical, was, quote, how disproportionately vulnerable the poor are to the escalating effects of climate change, end quote. And that says a lot. Poor people are on the front lines. It's not fair for affluent, progressive environmental activists to attack low-income people that maybe are working in the mines because that's the only job they can get. You know, we have to tackle both problems. The poor are on the front lines. <clears throat> when there's tornadoes, droughts, flooding, whatever, they don't have insurance to pay the cost. They're, they just lose everything. Um, and this is a central theme of environmental justice. But it's also a matter, a central theme of environmental justice also has to be tied together with the role of not only income inequality, but the role of structural racism, where coercive people of color and the poor into living in vulnerable areas and near the most polluted environments, whether it be landfills, industrial plants, whatever, and then they have the worst health out outcomes as well. So the Pope was really linking the environmental justice movement to the need to, to the environmental justice movement to the push for economic justice as well, because they go hand in hand. <coughs> Excuse me, folks. Let me grab some water. So peace also explain how economic inequality is also bad for the environment. They quoted an economist named James Boyce, and Boyce explained what a lot of us that come from low-income areas already instinctively knew just from dealing with an abusive situation, and that is societies with high levels of wealth and income inequality um, leaves everyone else, especially the poor, to really, and middle income too, to, they're unable to resist the, the power of the wealthy. And that translates into political power. And that's consistent with the environmental justice movement's message. Boyce takes it further, and he argues that, quote, the total magnitude of environmental harm depends on the extent of inequality. Societies with wider inequalities of wealth and power tend to have more environmental harm, end quote. Now, Boyce also has two pieces of evidence for his argument. The first is a study he conducted, uh, and, that, and that's at uh, University of Massachusetts Edu, Education Economics Department. He did this study with colleagues from the Political Economy Research Institute. And they compared industrial air pollution across the United States. And they looked at the distribution of air pollution and how and the impacts of that air pollution across multiple income levels and multiple racial groups. And what they found was that cities where the pollution exposure, I'm, I'm sorry, cities where the gaps, 
quote, in pollution exposure between people of color and whites are larger, there tends to be more pollution in general. So what they found was where there was more, not just in income inequality, but more racial inequality, that there was also more pollution, which backs up the argument that, yeah, the rich need this division, this racist division, so they can continue to um, get away with these multiple crimes. Now, the second study, again, voice conducted, uh, with a different group of colleagues, looked at environmental quality across the entire, and then asked the question, why are some states better about environmental quality than others? And again, it had to do with differences in wealth and power. To quote from the study, quote, where income inequalities were greater, where educational inequalities were greater, where the fairness of fiscal policy in terms of both the tax system and access to services like Medicaid was better, you tended to find differences in environmental degradation, end quote. So the idea was more equal distributions of wealth and power were associated with environmental income. Translation, greater income inequality meant that communities could better defend themselves against wealthy abusers. So in other words, areas where there were people that had a certain amount of, I'd say, affluence, they weren't wealthy, but they were upper middle class, they were better able to defend themselves against wealthy abusers. Again, go a little further, the wealthy look for the low-hanging fruit. The wealthy look for the low-hanging fruit. It is much easier for them and less must and less fuss to attack a poor area, a poor community where it's also a community of color, and get away with that type of pollution, that type of environmental attack, than it is to say go into a white suburb and try and do the same thing. And Boyce's results were also supported by complementary studies. There was another economist named, I hope I'm saying this right, Jungo Bake, and he had some co-authors. And this was as documented in ScienceDirect.com. And what they found was that more, quote, more equal income distribution in the United States results in better environmental quality in both the short and long run. Okay. Again, translation communities with at least some modest affluence have a certain amount of wealth. They're better able to defend themselves against the wealthy. That's why, again, the wealthy go for areas of the United States and other countries where the people are poorer and browner. Okay, this is a function of economic impoverishment and a function of racism. Again, they go for the low-hanging fruit because it's harder for those communities to defend themselves. Just is. So there's more here, but you can get the idea of it. Susan Holmberg is the author for this Grist article. She's also the research director and a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute in New York. She holds a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. So, no, she's not some person on YouTube. Now, there's more here. I'm not going to go through all of it. You get the drift here. 
There was a study from Stanford. We will talk about it in another program because my voice is giving out, unfortunately. Well, let's move on. Let's go to the second part of this show. Okay. So Noam Chomsky was on Amy Goodman's show, Democracy Now. Okay, love the show. And, you know, Chomsky just put it out there like he always does. This show uh, aired today, December 30th, 2021. And the headline is, Noam Chomsky explains how the Republican Party is marching the world to destruction. And they are. Okay. And he's saying they're doing so by a couple things. One, they're ignoring the climate emergency. And then they're also embracing what he calls proto-fascism here in the United States. You know, Chomsky's also talking about the January 6th insurrection. He also mentions how neoliberal uh, policies are a form of class warfare. They are. And then he talks about President Biden's climate plans and that they are really just inadequate compared to what's actually needed. You can read this yourself, but to get to the high points here, um, Amy Goodman, you know, confronts Chomsky and she says, you know, you've called the Republican Party the most dangerous organization in human history. I'm going to read what Goodman said. This is the quote. She said, Noam, you've called the Republican Party the most dangerous organization in human history. You've also called the political leaders a gang of sadists. I was wondering if you could elaborate on this, but also in all of your 93 years, have you ever seen such an anti-science, anti-fact trend in this country before. And then if you can talk about how it links up with other such movements around the world and how it should be dealt with. And Chomsky just says, well, quote, it's a fact there has been a strain of anti-science sentiment in significant parts of the United States for a long time. This is the country that had the Scopes trial. There's an unusual power in the United States of evangelical anti-science extremism. But as a political movement, it has nothing it, it has nothing been like what it is in the contemporary period. The Republican Party under Trump and his minions, he basically owns the party. They have been in the lead of trying to destroy the prospects for organized human life on Earth, not just unilaterally pulling out of the Paris Agreement, but acting with enthusiasm to maximize fossil fuel use, to dismantle the systems that somewhat mitigated their effects, denial of what's happening, reaching a huge number of loyal, almost worshipers, partly through their media system in other ways. And he goes on, he, he basically goes on to say that, you know, the U.S. is an incredibly powerful country, and when the United States races to the precipice of self-destruction, that has an impact on the rest of the world, because it does. Um, and then he talks about the proto-fascist type thing, okay, and he explains, Chomsky explains that there's been like this 40 to 45 year, what he calls assault on the general population, and the assault has been through the framework of neoliberal policies, neoliberalism, and it's true, okay, Um, there's nothing liberal about neoliberalism, it is, in my opinion, just warmed over trickle-down economics, Uh, Chomsky called it robbery, all right? So, and, you know, he 
Chomsky explains that the RAND Corporation did a study, and this study was what they called, this study was about what they called transfer of wealth. And the transfer of wealth from the lower 90% of us to the very rich during the last 40 years. And the RAND um, Corporation's estimate on the transfer of wealth is approximately 50 trillion with a T. And then there's this one line that Chomsky says, and it's, it's so direct, I love it. He said, quote, they call it transfer of wealth. We should call it robbery, end quote. And it is. It is robbery. He mentions how the Pandora Papers came out and revealed more aspects of this, this robbery, if you will. Um, and he also mentions the fact there's no social support and we don't have health care in this country. So he even mentions how what he calls trivial measures that exist in most civilized nations we can't implement here. You know, things like maternity leave, which is everywhere. Okay, apparently people like Joe Manchin, who claims to be a Democrat, seems to think that, huh, you just had that baby. Okay, well, you should go back to work in the field chopping down trees the next hour. I mean, it, it sounds extreme, but it really isn't. And now you have the Republican Party that are against any sort of help to the average person at all. He does mention Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Um, you know, he mentions that Joe Manchin is the leading recipient of, in Congress of fossil fuel funding. And he mentions that Kirsten Sinema is a big recipient of Big Pharma. Okay. And then he talks about neoliberalism. He says, you look it up in the dictionary and you hear these, you know, these bromides, these excuses about, you know, belief in the markets. You know, the market will magically correct everything. Okay, that's not economics. That's not objective study. That's magical thinking. That's a con. It's a lie. And Chomsky says the same thing. He says, you quote, you look at the reality, neoliberalism translates as bitter class war. I'm going to say that again. That's a perfect way to put it. To quote Chomsky, you look at the reality, neoliberalism translates as bitter class war. That's the meaning of it. Everywhere you look, every component of it, the RAND, the 50 trillion robbery is just one sign of it, end quote. He's right. So then he's asked about January 6th, and we're going to be talking about some of this on Sunday. You know, on Sunday's show, I'm going to be talking about the Republican plot to steal the election in 2024. Now, I'm aware of the fact that Republicans say we steal the election. We didn't. The evidence shows we didn't. But... This is the Republicans making sure that they have partisans that are in place in major states as Secretary of State. And it's the Secretary of State that controls, you know, the whole election process. And why would they want these people in position that are Trump acolytes? Because if the vote goes badly, they can find an excuse to throw out our votes and have the, legis- the GOP-controlled legislature toss it to someone like Trump. 
you should call it what it is. That is treason, in my opinion. But Chomsky talks about this as well. He says Republicans are denialists. And regarding fascism, this this is what Chomsky had to say, quote, as far as fascism is concerned, there are some analysts, very astute and knowledgeable ones, who say we're actually moving towards actual fascism. My own feeling is I would prefer to call it a kind of proto-fascism, where many of the symptoms of fascism are quite apparent, resort to violence, the belief that violence is necessary. Um, you know, end quote. And I, I, I kind of agree with him. I think we are at fascism. You know, a lot of people, the average person in this country, they really don't understand these labels too well. You know, we're not a nation of readers. And a lot of conservatives, they hear fascism, they think, oh, that's somebody like Hitler. But what fascism actually means, the definition, is when government is controlled and in bed with corporate forces and the wealthy, especially corporate forces. And then the violence that goes along with it, the denial of democratic rule, that goes hand in hand because what is a corporation but a dictatorship? There's nothing democratic about it. Um, Just like a lot of these conservatives, they don't understand it. They'll call something out as socialist or communist. They don't even know what it means. You know, to them, it means a totalitarian dictatorship like they see in China or Russia. But these are actually... uh, economic definitions and this is a function of the fact that we live in a culture that I won't just say anti-science we live in a culture that doesn't read doesn't like to read and celebrates its own ignorance we should be ashamed by the ignorance level in this country but far too many conservatives are not and once again my father used to say it's much easier to cheat somebody who's willfully ignorant um, than somebody who really analyzes and thinks. Personally, my attitude is, to put it bluntly, you can't fix stupid. So Chomsky is calling out the fact that these January 6th activists are being called out as heroes, that they were trying to save America. And you know, this is really incredibly dangerous. And he's right. But the, the Republican Party is really pushing this. Oops. So, to move on here, to put it bluntly, Chomsky is just, he's sounding the alarm. All right, the Republican Party is being is is basically pushing not only fascism, but they're pushing this environmental insanity. They believe in the markets to a point of idol worship. To them, economics isn't an academic subject; it is a theology, and they are blind to that theology. You know, there was a movie that just um, played this past week. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and um, Jennifer Lawrence were in it, and it was called Don't Look Up. And it was, the whole thing was predicated on this idea there was this big 
this big um, meteor that was extinction level heading for the Earth. And if it hit, it was going to destroy all life on the planet as we know it. And they had enough scientific data to prove it. And they took it, you know, they, they tried to sound the alarm. They wound up talking to, it was a woman president played by Meryl Streep, but she was, her character was just clueless. It was all about polling. And they did come up with a plan to um, basically aim nuclear warheads at this, at this uh, asteroid, if you will, that would change its course just enough that it would avoid hitting the Earth. And they were about to do it, and, and they, they pushed the button, they did it. But then there was this kind of like an Elon Musk, uh, Zuckerberg-type character that talked them out of it, and so they detoured the bombs. And that was because they had this plan that they were going to harvest the asteroid for technological profit. And they sent out these drones, except that it didn't work. And so at the tail end of everything, people are just trying to be with their families. This is an extinction event. And the cowardly president and the wealthy tech guru and all these people, in other words, the privileged, they got in these pods where they were going to be um, preserved, you know, frozen and preserved, and then sent back to Earth some 11,000 years later. The last scene in the movie, they're back on Earth. It's 11,000 years later. They come out of their pods, you know, naked as a jaybird. They enter the Earth. It's this looks like a beautiful Garden of Eden, and these really weird-looking, very colorful bird life, you know, people-sized birds approach. And the president goes, "Oh, look at that beautiful bird!" And then it eats her face. And you can just see the others, you know, kind of circle. They're they're all about to be eaten. That's what the Republican Party and corporate Democrats have descended into. That That's it in a nutshell. We have to get these people out of office. We have to reclaim our political power. And honestly, I know I've gone off topic quite a bit during this talk, but this all works hand in hand. The only way we're going to get back our power, it isn't going, hopefully some court challenges will work. But I don't think it's going to happen for that. It's going to have to be, the kids are right, not only um, basically a mass direct strike, in other words, a, a, but I mean a series of work stoppages, a series of active mass strikes where everything except only the most important emergency services comes to a grinding halt. You know, like they've done in France for quite a bit, where basically everything stops until we get people in office that restore rule of law. Right now, we don't have rule of law in the United States. We have rule of privilege. Our courts have been corrupted. Um, our political processes have been political corrupted. Not that they were ever that great, but now there's absolutely no no uh no pretending even it's just blatant you know the rich you, you get as much power as much justice as you can pay for the rich own everything 
And that's the problem. That's the danger the very rich pose to the rest of us. It isn't just about buying a bunch of, of um, luxuries. I don't care if they want luxuries, as long as everyone else has a decent standard of life. But I do care when the rich buy influence, when they own politicians, when they own judges, when, when basically they own police departments. That's corruption on an exponential scale, and that's what we have, seriously. And unfortunately, the Democratic Party is too naive or stupid to figure this one out. Progressives know. The squad knows. AOC, my congresswoman, Cori Bush knows. These kids know. But the corporate politicians of the Democratic Party, they either have no clue or they don't care or both. And that we just need to push them out of office because they're useless. We have to get our political power back. And all of this ties into the fact the rich pose a direct threat to everybody because they have bought too much political power, period. They are the new monarchists. Make no mistake about it. That's it in a nutshell. We don't have democracy. Hell, it's not even a republic. It is an aristocracy. It is a de facto monarchy, and it's not... It's not judged, it's not uh, determined by bloodlines, it's determined by, by pocketbook. And it has to stop. Because now it's at a point where the planet's survival is at stake. And make no mistake about it, do you really believe that Elon Musk and, the, and, and Jeff Bezos and these others are building these rocket ships because they like to joyride? No, they're looking for an escape. They're looking to, you know, people joke about them building compounds that can survive anything. But it's not a joke. We need to basically make them understand that if we go down, they go down. There will be no escape. Because right now, they see themselves as above the rest of us. That's it. Again, the true the true danger that the very wealthy pose is the corrupt amount of political power they have bought. Our government, our courts are a joke. And it happens at a local level as well. When our local electric company, Spire, cut the St. Louis community off from five existing pipelines carrying natural gas, I'm sorry, the gas company, they said, we have to keep this one gas line, the new STL pipeline going, even though it wasn't necessary and it, it was environmentally ill-advised. I called Spire. I've done a couple shows on this. I did an article on BuzzFlash. I made inquiries. And here I am, a, an independent reporter, small, small group. And what did I get from my, my uh Trouble? I was visited, not by three Christmas spirits. This was in early November. I was, no, I'm sorry, early December. I was visited by three detectives from the intelligence unit of the St. Louis Metropolitan Police questioning me regarding my intent regarding Spire. Now, 
you don't have to be a lawyer to know that that was a threat, that that was harassment, because it was. I was, they may have been polite as they violated my civil rights, my First Amendment rights, but that was a very visible threat. It basically said, stop asking questions. Otherwise, we're going to label you as something bad. Maybe label you as a terrorist. I hadn't done anything wrong, but that wasn't the point. That was a threat, and it was a political threat, and the complaint I found out came directly from Spire. And I'm sure what really, again, I'm not sure. I suspect what happened was that Spire's security person, who used to be lieutenant with that same police department, called Mayor Jones, who ironically considers herself a progressive, and then she she most likely called the police department and said, take care of it. She's asking too many questions. That was harassment of a journalist, period. Because I asked too many questions. If I ever doubted the fact that the wealthy have too much political power, I didn't doubt it that afternoon. Not at all. So once again, I apologize if I have been kind of all over the place tonight. It's been an emotional roller coaster and we're getting ready for the new year. Now, we usually have our jackass of the week, and I hadn't really planned it. But I would say that once again, the environmental jackass of the week this week is the Spire CEO, Suzanne Sitherwood. Because once again, she's responsible for everything that happens in that company. And I'm still hot as hell over that harassment. Make no mistake about it. And it was early in the month. I'm still just hot as can be. I had committed no crime. I hadn't harassed anybody. I hadn't broken any laws. But when they ask you your intent, and they're from an intelligence unit, which means most likely they were probably attached to the fusion center, which is anti-terrorist stuff, it isn't too hard to figure out that is a direct threat against a journalist, period. And you can read the piece I did in BuzzFlash. You can also go back to the archives on Progressive News Network and find the two shows I did on it. I will be investigating Spire in more depth. And just in case those jackass detectives are listening, Newsflash, all the sources I use are public information. And I would love to tell them Happy New Year. What I really want to tell them is go to hell. Because I'm not going to stop asking difficult questions. It's my right. Anyway, that's my rant for tonight. Um, You can access these these studies all you like. Again, it was more of a definite rant tonight because 
It's just the way I feel it right now. Usually I stick to the facts, but tonight was different. And we just have to realize that we are all in this together. And we have no room for cowardice. You know, my attitude is if we are in a massive lifeboat, we either all sink or we all swim. But I'll be damned if I'm going to throw someone overboard to save my own skin. Anyway, with that, I say Happy New Year. See you in 22 this Sunday. And good night and God bless us.